Donald Trump was indicted on 34 felony counts in New York City. The leader of Taiwan is in the United States meeting with Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. And the story about who destroyed Nord Stream 2, the Russian natural gas pipeline to Europe, is one that the U.S. and NATO want to go away, but it just won't. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. This is producer Nicole Roussel, and I'm here with Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash the socialist program. So Brian, Kevin McCarthy just met with Taiwanese officials and there's more important coverage, like I said in the intro on Nord Stream 2, really, I think, important coverage to talk about. Some Also some really big news for abortion rights. But before we get to all those stories, let's start with a story that the media thinks is pretty much the biggest news ever invented in, in the history of news, the Trump indictment. Can you give us your take? Yeah, Karl Marx said history repeats itself first as tragedy, then as farce. Well, I think the media coverage of Donald Trump's indictment on these 34 felony counts in New York City is a repetition, a clear repetition of exactly what happened before the 2016 election that Trump surprisingly won. And it happened again during the Robert Mueller investigation, during the impeachment trials. Here we have all of the corporate-owned, capitalist-owned, mainstream media giving wall-to-wall attention to Donald Trump once again as he's indicted by a prosecutor, a U.S. attorney in New York City, a Democrat. He's indicted on charges related to hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels seven years ago, seven years ago, not yesterday, not last year, not three years ago, seven years ago, about an affair that she allegedly had with Donald Trump in 2006. So that was 17 years ago. So here you have an obvious political effort by the Democratic Party or sectors of the Democratic Party to indict Donald Trump just as they impeached him before and just as they tried to use the Mueller investigation to basically force Trump out of office. And the media is giving Trump nonstop coverage, which is exactly what Trump wants. In fact, since the announcement that Trump would be arrested and he was the one who announced it, and the, then the announcement by the prosecutor in New York City and the announcement, the unsealing of the indictment, Trump's popularity has increased, certainly within the Republican Party. His chances of winning the Republican Party primary, it's going to be a contested primary for 2024, that's gone up. It's almost everything Donald Trump could possibly have wanted. And then you have the people who don't like Donald Trump, liberals in particular, progressive people in particular, people who were, you know, found Trump to be a repugnant, racist, misogynist, 
sort of warmonger. This was it when he was running in 2016, when he was promising to annihilate North Korea, when he was saying the U.S. should find the families of members of ISIS and kill family members. You know, that whole policy, the the overt demonizing and racist demonization of Mexicans and people from Central America, all of the reasons why progressive people should and do hate Donald Trump. Here we have, again, progressive people cheering, not for a real active grassroots movement of resistance for change, but cheering for the actions of a prosecutor in New York City cheering as they did for the investigation of Robert Mueller, who was the former FBI director at the time when Muslims and Arabs and South Asians were being rounded up by the thousands after September 11th. Yes, that Robert Mueller, he suddenly was going to be the champion to save democracy from Donald Trump and from Russia and from Putin. Again, what's happened is the people who were historically on the left or on the liberal left or kind of left, who are the people who were historically for civil rights, for peace, would have been for better relations between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. They got completely swept into the Democratic Party's very elite ruling class sponsored campaign against Trump, such that the real resistance that was organic and progressive at the beginning of the Trump administration, when people were filling up airports when Trump said, we're going to ban Muslims from coming to the United States. Thousands of people occupied airports and said no to that. Well, within a few months, that resistance dissipated. It became more or less a tail to the kite of the Democratic Party establishment. Then Donald Trump was impeached. For what? For delaying by a few weeks the sending of Javelin missiles to Ukraine after a conversation with Zelensky. He was impeached for not sending advanced weapons, the same weapons that Obama said should not be sent to Ukraine because they were such a reckless provocation. Now you had liberals and all the people who are supporting the Democratic Party were cheering for this impeachment of Trump, but it was a reactionary impeachment. It wasn't based on, on a progressive political orientation. And again, this nonsense, this fabricated hoax by intelligence operatives that Donald Trump had become president somehow because of the influence of the Kremlin, because the Kremlin or some internet research agency in St. Petersburg that we were told had good relations with Putin had placed like 50000 or or $100,000 of Facebook ads, half of which came after the election, but purportedly... That's what gave the United States Donald Trump. So here we have a reactionary scenario, Nicole. The FBI is not a progressive alternative to Donald Trump. The prosecution against Trump is in all ways and perceived by Trump supporters to be in all ways a political fishing expedition where the prosecutor in New York went for months going through all kinds of data from the last prosecutor, the last U.S. attorney, and sort of sifting through all the documents to try, try, try to come up with a legal case against Trump. And then this bizarre case that nobody should care about, and I don't think anybody does care about, $130,000 in hush money to Stormy Daniels, paid for Mike by Michael Cohen, Trump's fixer attorney, and then Trump purportedly, you know, sort of 
cooked the books so that it didn't look like he was paying off Stormy Daniels, that he was paying Michael Cohen for legal services. That was the big crime here. Meanwhile, when you think of all of the crimes that the U.S. ruling class and imperialism and the Pentagon and Trump and Biden and Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton committed, including the bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999, that was Clinton, the sanctions on Iraq, Clinton and Bush, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, that was Bush, that took hundreds of thousands of lives, the bombing by the U.S. and Britain and France of Libya, which basically destroyed a sovereign government and brought slavery back to Libya. I mean, these are real crimes. None of the U.S. government officials are ever, you know, indicted for them or even impeached for them. Remember, Bill Clinton was impeached for having sexual relations with Monica Lewinsky in the Oval Office and lying about it. Now we have Donald Trump being indicted for hush money to somebody he had an affair with 17 years ago, and the hush money was paid, shock, 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 in order to keep her quiet. That was seven years ago. Anyway, the left should not be cheering for this. This is a way of keeping progressive forces on the sidelines, spectators cheering for ruling class figures like prosecutors, like former FBI directors, rather than really doing what you need to do to fight for change, which is to be in the streets, organizing in our communities, organizing our fellow workers to build stronger unions, or if we don't have unions, to build unions, organizing anti-war protests like the one we had on March 18th against the escalating war, the proxy war against Russia. These are the things progressives should really be doing rather than sitting at home watching MSNBC and cheering for a prosecutor in New York who created a political case based on a fishing expedition. Nicole, you have followed the story a little bit. I'm not wrong. It was a fishing expedition. I mean, I think Trump is an odious and disgusting political figure who has a lot of crimes on his hands. This was a fishing expedition. This was absolutely a fishing expedition. He pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts of falsifying business records, which is, I mean, again, like you said, if anybody cares about this, I would be surprised. Not only that, they're all class E felonies. It's the lowest possible wrong. People who, like in his situation, if they weren't Donald Trump, most people with first time offenses like this get probation. This is something that is deeply not serious. And 12 of these charges are literally, like you said, just knowing that the business change some label from like payment to Stormy Daniels or payment to Michael Cohen to say legal expenses. I mean, this is just deeply, deeply a fishing expedition. And also because there's just so many little pieces of it in here, including, as you said, that prosecutors have been scrutinizing these records for a year and a half since fall of 2021. Alvin Bragg specifically, the current DA has been analyzing these payment details since last summer. And again, you know, Cyrus Vance was the prosecutor who had looked at this previously and had prosecuted Michael Cohen for the exact same thing. And he declined to charge Trump at the time because, you know, it didn't seem like a strong enough case. The difference now seems to be that it's a different prosecutor and he's decided that he wants to go ahead with it. But again, there's so many little things here where, you know, they had to make it a felony so that they could get the statute of limitations to extend long enough, because if it's a misdemeanor, you know, they would only have a statute of limitations for two years. They'd only be able to prosecute for any issues that have happened in the last two years. And like you said, this payment was made seven years ago. So then even to charge it as a felony, which lets it have a statute of limitations of five years, 
they're also going to have to convince the court to pause time, essentially, while Trump was in the White House. I mean, there's all of these little hops and skips and jumps to make this happen. To make it a felony, they also had to connect it to a second crime. And in the documentation that's been released, they haven't actually laid out yet what the second crime is. They're just reaching. They're just totally reaching. They're going to try to argue that the payment was a donation to the campaign, which is what Michael Cohen was convicted of. But again, when Michael Cohen was convicted, they didn't charge Trump. You would think if they had those charges, they would do it at that time. And again, these are like such fiddly, silly little things that we know business is constantly cheating people out of lots of things and constantly cooking all kinds of books, which doesn't make it okay. But it does show, you know, how fiddly and small this is and how, you know, this was, again, a fishing expedition. Yeah. And people actually can't make heads or tails out of it. I mean, there's nonstop coverage where people, all the pundits are getting on and being asked by NPR and MSNBC, this is unprecedented. Why is this a felony? Why is this not a misdemeanor? And they say, well, if it's a it's a misdemeanor if that becomes a felony, if it's a crime committed to cover up an underlying crime. And so, as you said, we're trying to understand what the underlying crime is. Maybe somebody understands it. They're making the argument, Nicole, that Donald Trump tried to, by virtue of paying Stormy Daniels using Michael Cohen as the funnel for the $130,000, paying her not to talk about the, quote, affair, close quote, that that basically, because it was done as a, in essence, a, a campaign contribution disguised as something else, that it was Trump interfering or trying to subvert the 2016 election laws. Anyway, it's so sort of beyond the pale. And again, I'm really, it kind of makes me sick that progressive people, people who are anti-racist, people who believe in abortion rights, people who are standing with the LGBTQ community, who are, you know, rejecting the book banning, rejecting the attempt to sort of eradicate U.S. history by making a, a demon out of so-called critical race theory and, and making sure that students today don't learn about the history of white supremacy in the United States. That part of the population is now cheering because Donald Trump has been indicted by a New York prosecutor. Again, this is not going to work out. In fact, I want to remind everybody, in case people don't remember, Jeff Zucker, CNN, and CNN became such an anti-Trump channel, right? Jeff Zucker, who was formerly the CEO of CNN, said CNN had a problem in 2015 because the ratings were so low. Advertising income was going down. CNN might you know, be forced into like bankruptcy. He said, we had a problem and Donald Trump fixed the problem. Why? Because Donald Trump became a source for media attention such that it brought everybody back to their TV sets from the right and the left. If you were on the right, you were watching Fox News. If you were more liberal or identified as the liberal, maybe you were watching MSNBC or CNN. Everybody came to the TV to watch this spectacle of Donald Trump, this wild campaign in 2016, this unexpected campaign. And CNN and the other networks that, again, turned out to be so anti-Trump and talking about how terrible Trump was and why he was an agent of, of Putin and the Kremlin, they were the ones promoting Trump. They gave him $2 billion in free media coverage. And sometimes 
even when, like when Bernie Sanders was speaking, I can remember this one time, they cut away from an actual speech that Bernie Sanders was making in 2016 to cut away to an empty podium where Donald Trump was expected to come and speak, quote, at any minute, close quote. Oh and they kept the camera on this empty podium. Again, they were the ones who made Donald Trump a thing. It's just this breathless coverage. Breathless coverage. And now we're going through exactly the same thing in 2023. I want to just add to in 2016, I'm sure you'll remember Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS at that time, said that Trump's campaign, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, unquote. Exact same sentiment. And just to back up, I think another kind of related statistic here, the Trump campaign announced the day after this indictment became public, in the 24 hours after the indictment became public, the campaign had raised over $4 million, which completely smashed its previous fundraising record, which was after the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, Trump's property. I mean, all of these things are helping Donald Trump and his campaign. They are helping. Yeah, and there, there's another element of it, which is really worth pointing out. Trump is making some noise. I think it's pure demagogy that, one, he doesn't want to cut Social Security, doesn't want to cut Medicare. Like That's in a popular appeal to segments of the working class and the poor, the lower middle class. And he's also saying, why are we spending all this money for the war in Ukraine? When I was president, Russia never invaded anybody. But when Obama was president, Russia took Crimea. That was 2014 after the U.S. sponsored coup in February 2014. When Biden was president, Russia intervened and militarily invaded Ukraine. I, Donald Trump, I'm the one that prevented any Russian military invasion because I know how to talk to the Russians. And of course, during his time in office, Donald Trump did talk at some points as if he wanted to have better relations with Russia. But in fact, he increased the sanctions much heavier than had been imposed by Obama, more sanctions, more draconian economic measures against Russia and more diplomatic strictures against Russia, closing Russian diplomatic compounds in the United States. Anyway, Donald Trump is now pretending to be against the war in Ukraine. I think if he were to be elected, he will undoubtedly continue it. We don't know with certainty. But again, this is also feeding into this narrative that Trump is bad, according to MSNBC and CNN, because he's talking about possibly reducing the commitment to the Ukraine war. Well, again, most people in the United States, most people don't want to increase monies going to Ukraine. They don't want to spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year for a proxy war when a negotiated settlement could have easily been had before the Russian military intervention. And it could still be had if the U.S. went back to the negotiating table and said, look, Ukraine is not coming into NATO. Ukraine is going to be a neutral country. But instead of doing that, the U.S. is now, again, it's a U.S. military alliance, just yesterday added Finland, which shares an enormous border with Russia. So here you have NATO. If NATO is in Finland and Ukraine is, even if it's not a formal member of NATO, it's a de facto member. Again, this is leading in the direction of greater confrontation with Russia as a precursor to major power conflict and maybe, and we're going to talk about Taiwan too, 
conflict with China. Most people in the United States don't want that. Most people in the United States, like most people everywhere, prefer peace over war. Brian, another thing that the majority of Americans don't want is war with China. But the leader of Taiwan was meeting with Kevin McCarthy just yesterday as the leader of Taiwan has been traveling on a long trip and has been to the United States twice and just met with the Speaker of the House. This is the third highest official in the country, in the United States, just met with the leader of Taiwan. What does this mean and what does this pretend for possible war with China? Well, China has said there would be severe consequences if the meeting takes place. So we shall now see what actually happens. But yeah, the Taiwan leader who was meeting with Kevin McCarthy during that same time period, Pivot to Peace, Answer Coalition, Code Pink, and other people from the Chinese-American community who favor normalization of relations or continued normalization of relations rather than war with China, staged a protest outside the Ronald Reagan Library yesterday. And hats off to all of those organizers and activists who did that. You can read about it at the Answer Coalition website and probably at the Code Pink website too. But, you know, I think, Nicole, when you consider the fact that McCarthy is, yes, the Speaker of the House, he's the leading Republican in the House of Representatives, and the Republicans have the majority in the House. But when the Democrats had the majority before the November election, Nancy Pelosi, as we have said on this show many, many times, she did the same thing, except she went to Taiwan and she had meetings. And so what they're doing is they're conferring de facto governmental status to the leadership in Taiwan. Now, the current leader in Taiwan, her political party advocates for independence from China. Their main competitor party in Taiwan, the KMT, the Kuomintang, he's in China. He's in China for a 12-day trip. That's an unprecedented trip, too. And he's making the point that they, the KMT, the Kuomintang, the nationalist forces who are in Taiwan, also recognize that there is only one China. And in the past, of course, this was the political party that lost the civil war in China. That was the party led by Chiang Kai-shek that was defeated after the 27-year-long civil war. Mao's party, Mao's army, the army of the communists, won that civil war and took the power in China in 1949. And the KMT, Kuomintang, they fled to Taiwan. That's when Taiwan became a military dictatorship and also essentially an, an extension of American power used to project American power against China. He's now in China during the same time that she's in the United States, the current president. He's in China saying, yeah, we're for good relations with China. We're absolutely opposed any Taiwanese independence. So part of what's going on is a political dispute inside Taiwan between two different parties that are taking turns competing for who, which of them will be the ruling party in Taiwan. But more important than what's going on in Taiwan is what's going on in the United States. The Republicans and the Democrats are competing with each other to show who's going to be the strongest voice against China, who's going to be the hard line against China. Now, there are numerous ways that China is being attacked. It was always attacked because the PRC claimed sovereignty over Tibet. It's attacked. The PRC, China, is attacked because of Hong Kong, the U.S., and British media. 
that never said a word against colonial domination of the people of Hong Kong and the theft, the dismemberment of China by detaching Hong Kong from China during the opium wars launched by British imperialism, you know, almost 200 years ago. No complaint about the nature of the Hong Kong government then when it was a colonial subject, obviously not a democracy. But now the West has been the great champions of democracy for Hong Kong. Then there's the Uyghurs in the western part of China, in Xinjiang. And the U.S. is making this outlandish assertion that there was a genocide or is a genocide being committed against Muslim peoples in the western part of China, in that area. So those are parts of the sort of main attack points for U.S. propaganda against China. But bottom line, the biggest one for the last two years has been Taiwan, that somehow China is on the march. China, which absolutely insists that Taiwan is part of China, as it has been for 400 years, except the times when it was colonized by Japanese imperialism, that they will never allow Taiwan to be independent. They weren't on the march. There was no move by the Chinese government to seize, militarily seize Taiwan. They always say we can because it belongs to us as we're the sovereign power in Taiwan. And the U.S. knows how central it is to China. But China's not making any aggressive moves towards Taiwan. It's the United States that's provoking this crisis. This is an artificially created crisis because the other attack points, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, they weren't doing the trick. But Taiwan, as long as it exists as an independent or semi-independent entity, and as long as it's there as an island offshore from the mainland of China, it's ripe for the plucking as a propaganda point for the U.S. to say, look, China is the aggressor. The U.S. always says the other side is the aggressor. The U.S. is always acting in self-defense. The U.S. is always doing something noble, defending democracy, defending human rights, stopping weapons of mass destruction, or in this case, protecting Taiwanese independence and autonomy. But the reality is that the U.S. politicians are competing with each other to sort of stick their finger in the eye of China and say, no, really, Taiwan is going to be ours. Taiwan will be independent, which means really dependent, completely dependent on the U.S., not just as it has been for the past decades, but forever. So they're really upping the ante. And I think the Chinese so far have been prudent. I know a lot of people in China were hoping that they did something to stop Nancy Pelosi's plane from landing in Taiwan. I know there's probably growing anger within the body politic, within domestic public opinion in China over all of these provocations. So far, the Chinese government has avoided doing something that would provoke an even bigger crisis because, in fact, China doesn't want a war. But anyway, this is a new feature of U.S.-China relations where even when Biden says, oh, yeah, we want to have some good relations, we want to compete, but also not have a confrontation with China. Well, you can't say that and mean it and then tolerate U.S. political officials, including Nancy Pelosi from your own party, going and acting as if Taiwan is an independent country, because that's how China will understand it. And it also accelerates the pro-independence movement in Taiwan. And most of the people are not really for a war for independence in Taiwan, but it accelerates the extremist 
pro-separatist elements in Taiwan because the U.S. and both parties are so embracing of this idea that Taiwan must be independent from China. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, of course, an incredibly important topic that we'll continue to cover. Brian, I want to go to a story about the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline between Russia and Europe. So really quite an interesting piece that you found in a Washington Post article. It's not the point of the full article. The full article is about how officials maybe found a yacht that was, you know, might have been involved in sabotaging the pipeline. But there's a section in that called Don't Talk About Nord Stream. And I just want to read a short bit of it and get your comments. So the article goes, quote, At gatherings of European and NATO policymakers, officials have settled into a rhythm, said one senior European diplomat, quote, Don't talk about Nord Stream, unquote. Leaders see little benefit from digging too deeply and finding an uncomfortable answer, the diplomat said, echoing sentiments of several peers in other countries who said they would rather not have to deal with the possibility that Ukraine or allies were involved, unquote. And another sentence, quote, for all the intrigue around who bombed the pipeline, some Western officials are not so eager to find out, unquote. I mean, this so-called journalism, Brian, I mean, if you really read the words at gatherings of European and NATO policymakers— one European diplomat said, don't talk about Nord Stream and that they see little benefit from digging too deeply and finding an uncomfortable answer. I mean, this isn't journalism. Brian, tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah. If you're actually reading this story, it's laughable, except the journalists, so-called journalists are writing it with a straight face. What might that uncomfortable answer be about who destroyed Nordstrom? Again, we know Victoria Newland celebrating it. We know Anthony Blinken celebrating it. Before it was destroyed, Biden said at a press conference, this was, I think, on February 7th, about three weeks before the Russians moved into Ukraine, he said, if the Russians move into Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 will no longer exist. And then one of the journalists said, well, wait, that's a German project. How do you know it won't exist? And he said, well, stop it. And she said, I'm paraphrasing, she said, but again, how can you stop it? It's a German project. And he said, we'll stop it. And then had this kind of wry smile. Nicole, you talked to Seymour Hirsch here in Washington. And you know his article, he says he knows who actually did it. Now, we don't know if he's right or not right. But Seymour Hirsch, a very credible journalist, he was the one, the main journalist who exposed the fact that U.S. troops massacred more than 500 Vietnamese civilians in the village of Millet in 1967, when the Pentagon, including Colin Powell at that time, was covering it up. And he was always considered a really sort of groundbreaking investigative journalist. I mean, he says he knows who did it. And he says, it's not the Poles. It wasn't that yacht. It's a unit within the Pentagon. Yeah, he writes actually that last June, Navy divers, quote, operating under the cover of a widely publicized midsummer NATO exercise known as Ball Tops 22, Navy divers planted the remotely triggered explosives that three months later destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines. This is according to his source, who he describes as a source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. So this was the Pentagon. This was the Biden administration. So he writes about, and he writes in great detail with lots and lots of detail and understanding of why Biden might want to do this, why the administration might want to do this. He writes, quote, with Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border and the bloodiest war in Europe since 1945 looming, 
President Joseph Biden saw the pipelines as a vehicle for Vladimir Putin to weaponize natural gas for his political and territorial ambitions. Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back-and-forth debate inside Washington's national security community about how best to achieve this goal. For much of the time, the issue was not whether to do the mission, but how to get it done with no overt clue as to who was responsible, unquote. So, I mean, he lays it out. Yeah, let's go on in our last minute or two. A big shout out to the people in Wisconsin, and undoubtedly it was women and young women who must have taken the lead. But Wisconsin voters on Tuesday, I'm reading from the New York Times, chose to upend the political direction of their state by electing a liberal candidate to the state Supreme Court, flipping majority control from conservatives, according to the Associated Press. The result means that in the next year, the court is likely to reverse the state's abortion ban and end the use of gerrymandered legislative maps drawn by the Republicans. And Nicole, the judge, the newly elected judge, I'm not sure I can properly pronounce her name. It's a complicated name, at least complicated for me. What is it? Judge Janet Protasewicz. I do think that it's very exciting that this judge won by 11 points and that, you know, she's going to make a huge difference. She and, but more importantly, all the people who, you know, rallied her support and made sure that abortion rights can come back into something that people actually have in Wisconsin, something that women have as a right in Wisconsin, as it should be in this whole country, as it easily could be if Congress would actually pass something like that. They could do that. They have the power to do that, but they refuse to do that. So the fact that Wisconsin voters have taken it into their own hands is fantastic. And it's another sign that after the Dobbs decision that destroyed Roe and made abortion no longer a a legal right. And we should say safe abortion because abortions will continue to happen, but safe abortions will be banned now in state after state are banning abortions or virtually banning them. And, you know, even people who are voting Republican, who maybe consider themselves conservative and especially the women and families, you know, the majority still wants abortion rights. If there's an unwanted pregnancy for themselves or their daughter or a close friend, they want that person to be able to have a safe legal abortion. That's right. And so we have this fight back that's starting, the referendum in Kansas, this vote in Wisconsin. This shows that the right wing, as it moves forward with its counter-revolutionary assault against democratic rights, people want to fight back. The problem is that Roe v. Wade and abortion rights were won because of the women's liberation movement, which was sort of an adjunct to the black liberation movement and also connected to the massive youth movement and anti-war movement of the 1960, late 1960s and early 1970s. That movement was in the streets. The ruling class was afraid. It was the Supreme Court during the Nixon era which voted 72 to allow women the legal right to have an abortion. That was an indication not that Nixon was progressive or the Supreme Court was progressive. The ruling class has had to make concessions when the masses of people are in the streets. And while we see this manifestation of opposition to the right-wing anti-women program, the destruction of abortion rights, we see this at the ballot box, We also recognize that it has to go far beyond the ballot box if it's going to be actually a right that can be re-secured. It has to be won by people in the streets. 
creating that militant, massive movement for justice. Anyway, Nicole, this is going to be an ongoing struggle. You know, throughout history, radical movements for transformation, including revolutionary movements, frequently come not because people start off as radical revolutionaries, but they're reacting to the onslaught, the attacks by the right wing, by the government, by the ruling class, by the reactionaries. And in the course of the struggle against reaction, people form their own organizations. They build progressive movements, grassroots movements, and movements that become increasingly more radical in their demands for real radical social transformation. And I think certainly that this disgusting attack against abortion rights for women and anyone who needs an abortion, this gratuitous right-wing assault that has been finally victorious with this super right-wing Supreme Court, it will eventually, and I hope quickly, trigger a fight-back movement that will re-secure abortion rights, but go far beyond that in demands for all of the things that working-class people need. And right now, as we can see, there's going to be a new economic crisis, a new recession. The ruling class capitalists are actually wanting a recession. They think that's the way to, quote, tame inflation, to let the working class and poor bear the burden of the economic reset. We are in a situation where there's a pressing and dire need for a new movement for social change. Our show, The Socialist Program, isn't simply designed to provide interesting information or a narrative about the news. It's to provide information to people and for people who want to change the world. And that's what we're trying to do with the socialist program. Absolutely, Brian. Couldn't say it better. Thank you so much to everyone, to all of our listeners, our supporters and our patrons. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.